WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with violinist Kevin Lynn. Lynn made news in 2020 when he left his role as co-leader of the London Philharmonic Orchestra to take a position as concertmaster with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Lynn will share his thoughts on the ISO's 2023 season. And on the second half of this week's show, we'll have another edition of Rebel Music with Carla Lopez, an ongoing series that explores the relationship between music and activism. This week, Carla's guest will be the librarian, archivist, and activist Stephen Lane, a member of the Indianapolis chapter of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Lane will share how music has shaped his work as an archivist and activist. But first, let's join my conversation with Kevin Lynn. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about the ISO's 2023 season. Great. But first, I wanted to learn a little bit about your background. From what I understand, you grew up in the state of New York. Your dad was a scientist, and your mom had a background singing opera. Is correct. that right? Correct, correct. Yeah. People always give me a hard time about this. So I was born in New York City, and I the first two years of my life, I grew up in Washington Heights. But... Uh, I have to. I have to be honest. I did. My, my parents did move out to North Jersey, and uh, a lot of my public schooling was done in in, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and Tenafly, New Jersey. Um, so when people ask where I'm from, I just I, I just say I'm from New York City. It's just I think it's easier than giving this entire 15 second sure. spiel about <laughs> about how I'm actually from New Jersey. Um, yeah, and that that's right. So my mom uh, is is a classically trained opera singer, and I think that's where. Uh, her love of music was instilled in me, and uh, and my dad is a uh, geneticist mm. at, at Columbia University. So uh, that's kind of why we ended up in that neck of the woods. What kind of music would you hear around the house growing up? Was your mom singing? Were they playing music the often? Time. Yeah, wow, Absolutely. that's so cool. Absolutely, all the time. My mom is a diehard Sarah Brightman, Andrea Bocelli, uh, you know, all the classics. Um, and so that was it, it was amazing. We had Andrea, uh, Andrea Bocelli come in it was it was i believe early december um and so that was that was really cool it was the first time the she's iso ever... played yeah right? yeah so yeah. we were at game bridgefield house yeah. and we we got to collaborate with with bocelli and my mom flew in for that and i think that's the proudest she's ever been in my in my in my career so i'm, I'm glad i'm glad she was uh she was there to be able to witness that and you were exposed to classical music from a very early age yeah. at what point did you start playing yourself um, so my mom started me on piano around the ages of two and three. I uh, not super seriously, but I think that was just 
you know, so, something that was was instilled in us from a young age. And then when I was six years old, we had a lot of family friends that started uh, picking up the violin. And I, I went to to a public school in Fort Lee, and that that's when that sort of education was available to us. And a lot of our family friends also started on violin, and so therefore I wanted to as well. Um, I was a bit of a competitive kid growing up myself, so if I, if I see my friends do it, I want it as well. And, uh, and that's, that's how I started violin. Beyond the competitive nature of it, obviously classical music is filled with very adult ideas and emotions. Yeah. Did the music speak to you as a kid? Did it make sense to you at a young age? To be totally honest, I hated practicing. Yeah. I was, um, it was something that was taught to me, you know, it was like, oh, this is going to be good for, for discipline training. And this is something that's going to help you on your college resumes. And, um, and that's, kind of, that's kind of how it started. And my mom, my mom and dad sent me to music festivals when I was, uh, when I was in middle school, kind of like sleepaway camp in the summer for, for classical music. And I made some of my best friends, uh, at these places, at the Kinhaven School in Vermont, uh, the Heifetz Institute, the, these are basically, you know, one month to two month programs that were that were kind of just in the woods, and you're you're just these like growing kids exploring yourselves, learning about yourselves, but at using classical music music as the medium. And I'm still best friends with some of these people today, and I actually work with a lot of these people. I went to these festivals with and so as soon as I started going to these summer festivals those became my primary friends um, I gravitated towards creative and musical people and when I went to school you know my the 7 30 to, to 3 p.m. that was kind of it felt like an obligation it, it felt like it's just something I had to do to get my high school diploma but the the real start of my day started when I when I got home and I got to practice and I got to talk to my friends on AIM and, and Google Chat, uh, you know, back in the day. So that was that's kind of how my, my love for music evolved. It developed along with these social... Uh, oh, it was very much a social yeah, thing. Yeah, this and, social network. Yeah, you, and it's... It your peer it's, group, yeah. It's part of why I love doing what I do yeah. today. I get to connect and work with so many of my, my great friends and that that's it makes it really worth it. Do you remember if there was a point when the music kind of started to make sense to you? Was there like a breakthrough moment or was that something that happened over time where you started to kind of see deeper things or feel more from the music you were playing? Sure, yeah, I think I, I remember very, very specifically in seventh grade um, I was given an opportunity to play it's it's a relatively uh, it's a relatively easy piece but it's called the Preludium Allegro by Fritz Chrysler. Fritz Chrysler is the as the composer, and I was given an opportunity to perform this with my middle school orchestra, and I, I, I always knew I was, I, was, I was good, I was proficient at the violin, but this was the first time where I stood up in front of my entire school, I played this, this solo, and the crowd went nuts, and I will never forget it, and this is, I think that is the specific moment where I was like, this is amazing, I love that feeling, I'm going to continually chase for that um, appreciation, and I, I, I know you know, this is something that I can like show off with. This is something I'm very good at, apparently. And I think it was with that specific moment in public school music education that kind of solidified what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That's amazing. I read that you earned the nickname the Maestro. Correct. Yeah, and that's it's because of this concert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All my friends, you know, I was I was just the kid that you know played violin, and 
you know, Maestro sounds a lot better than the kid who just plays violin, so mm. it's, it's pretty cool. mentioned you have a competitive nature. Yeah. Um, it strikes me that the world of classical music is very rooted in competition. Oh, yeah. You know, Absolutely. I mean, competition is part of all music. I come from like a DJ hip-hop background. Sure, and sure. There is breakdance battles, DJ yeah. battles, yeah. etc. But, uh, you know, competition is at the root of pretty much every aspect of uh, right. professional classical music life, from right. getting into school, getting jobs, and yeah. the world of contests, which you came out of. Sure. Can you talk to me about how that element of competition has uh, improved what you do and maybe at times <laughs> caused yeah. you some misery. Oh my god, I, I mean I'm sure it's yeah, I'm sure you know this very well as well. It's it it's a, it's a driving force and I think it really develops throughout your entire career whether, you know, it, whether you could you could handle it or not. Um, just for for reference, you know, when we have an, have a job opening, if we have a violin opening at the ISO, you know, many times we'll get close to a hundred resumes and we can only hire one person. And so that's through many, many rounds of screening and auditions and to basically have a 1% chance at getting a job, you know, it's, it's not for the faint hearted. Um, and that's kind of the same way with, uh, you know, going to music school, just even being able to attend music school is extremely selective. You know, there's the Juilliards, the Curtises, those are, those are very hard to, hard to get into. Um, so I think there is a natural weeding out process for, for musicians. You know, those that can handle the pressure will, will continue to be part of it and to excel in it. Um, and it, it's, a lot of it, it also is just down to the individual. Like if you, can, if you can handle the pressure, you'll be able to be successful. So it's been a positive for you. Well, I, well I, I think so. I think yeah. I've done okay in my career, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm sure some of my friends are really sick of my my competitive nature. Um, you know, I, I, I'm fairly content with where I am in my career at my current moment. So I've like resorted to running marathons and started rock climbing and, and that kind of stuff. So it, it does leak. My competitiveness does leak out into other facets of my life. I think when people see someone in a position like you who's achieved a lot at a young age, they underestimate the amount of failure and yeah, it's... <laughs> and uh, all the uh, lost opportunities. Right? right, right, right. Yeah. How has that affected your outlook on this work? I think that also came down to my competitive nature. I just like if I lost something, I just want to get back up and do it again. And there's I, I've always gone by this quote, you, you, you only need to win once. And that's very true. You know, you all you got to do is win once to get into the school you want. All you got to do is win once to get the job that you want. And then the one thing after another, that, that kind of sets you up for success. Um, I totally understand being discouraged. And it's, it's a very, it's a rough field. It's a rough world, no matter what sort of thing you get yourself into. But I think if you can put yourself within the right mentality, I think you're, you'll, you'll, you'll be okay. Okay. 
And Kevin, pretty early in your career, you were offered some significant opportunities. Right. When you were 24 years old, you took a very prestigious position with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your work in London and kind of how, at such a young age, you were able to get this in- incredible opportunity. Sure. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's such a funny process in, in, in how I got that job. I, um, I was at the Curtis Institute of Music. I was a first-year in, in, in a two-year program at the time, and uh, I have I, I have some amazing friends who are also doing amazing things in, in the music world. And some of us and so, some of them get jobs earlier than than, than the rest of us. Um, I'll use names here, actually. So my my, my good friend Nathan Chan, uh, who is a cellist, but I remember one day he showed up in Philadelphia for an audition with the Philadelphia Orchestra, one of the most prestigious orchestras in the world, and. Uh, it was for a title position, which is also extremely hard to get. And he showed up in our in our school cafeteria one day, and he's just like, "Wow, I'm in the finals!" And here I am, twiddling my thumbs in a university, and having almost never taken a job audition. And my friend, who's at who's the same age as me, is about to win this incredible, you know, career establishing job. And my friend and I. We're just sitting there one day, which is like, what are we, what are we doing with our lives? Like, <laughs> like he Nathan's out here conquering the music world, and here we are thinking like we can just be, you know, yeah. I, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, we we had many late nights over some yinglings discussing this, um, and so a couple days later, I literally went on a job posting website for for musicians and just applied to everything I could find everything and one of them actually being for a substitute position with the London Philharmonic and I thought nothing of it I was like this is if 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 I get an opportunity to go visit London that'd be pretty cool if not I give it a shot what the heck um you know a, a month pass and I get a I get an email back from uh one of the leaders there he's and he's just like there's Kevin, there's no way we're going to fly you from Philadelphia to London just to play as a substitute musician for us. And also your, your resume is a bit overqualified for this. Would you be interested in coming and playing an audition for, for the co-leader spot? I was like, wow, this is more than I, I didn't even know there was an opening available. Was, yes, absolutely. So I went over there, played the audition, did some trial weeks with them, and that's how I got the job just because I was competitive. And I, I also wanted a job. And applied for a substitute position, so it's it's, it's such a I, it's it's not the traditional way of winning mm-hmm. a job by any means, um, and so that's that's kind of how I started my career in in London. That's an important yeah. position within an orchestra. It right? is co-leader. It is, and you're coming into this very young. I'm sure there was quite a few veteran musicians yeah, in the orchestra. Absolutely. How was that? <laughs> how did yeah. you integrate into no, no, that no, no. culture? I, yeah, I was I was very uh, I was honestly very worried about it. I was young. I was American in a British orchestra, um, so there was. I, I think there there were more things going against me than than for me. So, but also being young also rewards you with you know you're you're, you're kind of oblivious to to a lot of the, the things. So I kind of just went in there, put my head down, did my job, and I think I think people enjoyed it. I had three very successful years there. I I'm still very good friends with the colleagues now. Um, and it just, I, I learned so much. It's, it's, it's a different world out in London. There was a lot of, we toured all the time. 
we went on, you know, one week tours to Japan, two weeks tours around Europe. We did uh, Korea tours. We we went all over the place. So it was so much fun, but also so tiring at the same time. Um, and I basically learned the entire symphonic repertoire in three years. Um, that's how much repertoire we went through. And, uh, you know, th- with all that knowledge, I was like, okay, maybe it's time to, to come home. Uh, my family still lives in New Jersey, and uh, a lot of my friends are, are, are in the American orchestras. I went to school in the States. So I, I, always, I, I always knew I was going to make it back home at some point, and, I, and with, with three years under my belt, I, f- I felt like that was a pretty good time. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. My guest this week is Kevin Lin, violinist and concertmaster for the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. Let's return to our conversation. And before we talk about your time in Indianapolis, I did want to ask you about the instrument you perform on. Sure. You have a very unique violin. Yeah. From what I understand, this was crafted in Italy and yeah. Naples in the 1700s. Yeah. Tell us about your violin, the significance of it, its sure. history. Yeah. Sure. So uh, my violin is uh, is crafted by a, by a guy called Joseph Galliano. He's, he comes from a – the Galliano family is a very – uh, they, they span hundreds of years, and every generation makes their own instrument. Um, but Joseph Galliano made my instrument in 1780. Um, it has I bought this at the beginning of my career in London, so 2017. So I've had it with me a couple of years now, um, and it's been with me everywhere. You know, it's kind of like my passport. I, I every time I, I go somewhere, I got a stamp on it. Um, and it's it's been through thick and thin, um, been through every audition I've I've ever played, and you know it's 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 kind of like a kid you're carrying around an an insurance policy, your your retirement fund essentially, um, and so it's and people when you know when when we're on tour and when people see the instrument, people know that it's yours, and, and likewise with me and my colleagues, um, I think it's very important to to invest in. In a, in a great instrument because that's something that's going to live well beyond your years. Yeah. What are the qualities of a historic instrument like yours as opposed to sort of a top-of-the-line uh, mass-produced violin sure. that comes um, out today? Yeah. yeah I, well, there, there, I, there are some amazing modern-day makers that are actually quite investable. Um, but, you know, if, if, if we're talking a machine-made violin versus a handcrafted violin there there's so much art and art value involved with you know some of the older makers and some of the contemporary makers today it's not something that you can just say put wood in and and it shoots out this violin there's a each violin is very different and so there's only one of the violin that i have and that's what that's what makes it so rare i guess it's uh you know based on modern times it's an inflation proof um and it's having something that's one of one is is very quite special. Yeah, and Kevin, I did want to ask about your uh, arrival here in Indianapolis. Yeah. As you mentioned, you were at the London Philharmonic for about three years, Correct. and you accepted a position as concertmaster for the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. What drew you to Indianapolis? Mm, well, I think a lot of it is is friends based, and I think I had a lot of colleagues 
my current colleagues who who have been through school with me, been to these summer festivals that I was talking about. Um, so just being able to reconnect and be around people you you enjoy being around is is very important to me. Um, on top of that, the orchestra has a long-standing history. You know, we've been around 80 to 90 years, one of the foremost uh, orchestras in the United States. We've done tours to Europe, to Asia. We've 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 done it all. We've made tons of recordings, um, and so I think in recent years the budgetary constraints have distributed themselves a little bit, and so I think I saw an opportunity here to basically bring it back to its original glory if not further it and I think what we our, our management team and the musicians are very keen on continuing being one of the best if not the best of, of, of the United States and we want to be something that Indianapolis is very proud of and this is something that uh, everybody can take ownership in. I grew up here in Indianapolis, and among artists, musicians here in the Midwest and in Indianapolis, there's always this mentality that you're trying to break through to New York, London, or whatever big uh, metropolitan center there is out in the world. Uh, did some of your peers find it strange that you were <laughs> making a move from London to Indianapolis? How was this kind of how was this accepted by your peers and friends? I think so. Of, of course, everyone is just like, "Are you sure?" Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I, I, I was I was fully expecting that question, but I don't regret my decision at all. I, I've I've I, I grew up in in large cities in and around New York City. Went to school in L.A., Philadelphia. Worked in London. I've I'm very used to the big cities, but there's something amazing about. Indianapolis where it's incredibly welcoming and homey. I can go to my coffee shop and it's the same person that serves me coffee every day and that there's something very familiar and comfortable and frankly that's you know the whole part of the reason I moved back is, is, is for a closer sense of community and friends and that's something you don't necessarily get in New York City um, and Indianapolis has that in spades. Uh, but also what the orchestra is doing is 100% on par with the quality of music that is being produced in, in London, in L.A., in, in, in New York, and we, we keep striving to be at the forefront of our game. And uh, I want to be part of a team that is perpetually improving, and that's definitely what I see here. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to always be the best, like in New York and then in London. And sometimes it's a little bit more fun to participate in the chase. Um, and so I, I, I'm having a very, very good time here. Good, good. And Kevin, we mentioned your title, Concert Master. Yeah. For folks who aren't immersed in the world of classical music, how would you describe that role? You're kind of a liaison between the conductor and the musicians mm -hmm. and kind of communicating ideas back and forth, right? Right. Um, I see myself as like a glorified traffic cop for the, for the orchestra. <laughs> uh, 
we work with a different conductor, music director, every week. And so I am kind of the guy who is there to bridge the continuity between the conductor and the um, and the rest of the orchestra. And given my past and and my my resume, I've worked with a lot of the conductors that have that are going to come and and work with us. I know ahead of time what they're like, their personalities, what sort of musical ideas they have, and um, I basically just translate that in a very literal way to to the rest of the orchestra. Oh, okay, we got to play earlier here. We got to make sure we're not late at this specific bar. Um, uh, just other other sorts of things like that. Maybe oh, cellos, if we could play a little bit more, we want to hear a little bit more of you. Uh, and it's kind of my job to be that point person to kind of pull the entire orchestra together. It's 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 hard to to get eighty people to play mm -hmm. together. It's like I imagine it's like driving a uh, a jumbo jet. <laughs> you know, you can't turn on a dime, but if you if you instill enough uh, influence, you can slowly make it work in the right way. Before we talk about the 2023 season, I sure. wanted to ask a more general question Please. about orchestra repertory. Yeah. An orchestra like the Indianapolis Symphony serves a very large and diverse community mm -hmm. with different and sometimes conflicting interests. Yep. There are people who want to see all the familiar classics. There are people like me who want to see some new music by living composers. And I think there's a growing demand to see orchestras perform works of works by composers of color, right? Right. Um, I think the symphony does a pretty good job meeting some of these demands. Mm -hmm. What are your general thoughts on repertory from that kind of perspective? I think I think you, I think you hit it right on the head. You, we we have to serve a very diverse and um, ba ba we we need we need to give something for for everybody. Is, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I think that's a collaboration between our music director, our conductor, and our our management team. And I think this is why there are so many departments within the within the ISO. We have a pops department, we have a classical department, we have a development department. Um, and the reason for all of these departments is so that we can make sure we are serving every demographic, every sort of listener out there, and making sure that there's something for everybody. Um, and we hope that these people, you know, mix and match and, you know, explore other ones as well. We want our pop subscribers to come listen to our classical music. We want our classical subscribers to come listen to an Uncharted series with Steve Hackman. Um, and I think we want the product to be the orchestra. And then no matter what we put on, we want people to have a great time. And uh, I think we have definitely been more clued in and keen on DEIB and performing works by people who have been underrepresented um, and not just not just composers but we also want to take a look at who uh, we're working with yes we, we realize the, a majority of the orchestra is is white is is Asian and we want to take a look at that and example and examine why that is and um, we're, we're doing everything that we can, and I'm, sh I'm sure there's tons more that we can do, but we're, we're going to strive for that to be as inclusive, as as fair, and, uh, you know, we, we want to represent everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and I, we want to we, we stray away from being 
you know, old and and stiff and you know stuck up. And you know, classical music doesn't always have the best reputation, but it really can be enjoyed by everybody, and that's that's the goal. Mm. There was one concert in particular I wanted to ask you about. See if you had any thoughts to share. In May, the ISO is performing the Florence Price Piano Concerto mm-hmm. with pianist Laura Downs. And uh, also on that bill, I think, is a William Grant Still piece. Mm-hmm. You know, Florence Price was the first female African-American composer to have a work performed by a major orchestra. Yeah. William Grant Still is known as the dean of African-American composers. Sure. Does their work mean anything to you? Does that have any uh, particular meaning to present these works with the ISO for you? I'm actually really proud to be able to perform this this sort of this sort of music, and it's, I say it like, like it's not classical music, but it's 100% classical music. It just hasn't been part of our regular repertoire. I've never played this in London, and when I feel like, when I said earlier that I, I feel like I've learned everything in the classical music repertoire, this is where I'm stumped, because I come back and I was like, there's so much that we haven't discovered yet. Um, and to be able to learn something for the first time and perform it with such a forward-thinking organization, um, this also just dives back into being able to grow and be part of something that is always thinking of what's next and how can we always be better. Um, and I, to be totally honest, I haven't haven't taken a look at the music yet. But uh, when it when it comes, I'm sure it's going to be something that's extremely extraordinary. And I'm yeah, we're we're, we're very proud to be presenting this sort of works, or else it wouldn't be our not classical series. Are there any other highlights from the upcoming season that you want to share with people or that you're particularly excited about? Uh, well, in January, actually, there's there's going to be a, a change in changeover of guard, per mm-hmm. se. Uh, our resident conductor, Jacob Joyce, is going to be conducting his last concert with us before he moves on to other opportunities. And um, so he's going to be conducting Nielsen four, fourth symphony, and that's it's gonna be a raucous and bombastic piece. And that, I think that that'll that'll be that'll be a lot of fun to to listen to. Um, we have Josh Weilerstein coming back and conducting the Mahler's first symphony. Uh, there's so much to to choose from. And I think it's great because the majority of our classical music uh, subscriptions are part of twenty twenty three. We've only had maybe I believe three classical concerts uh, in 2022, in in this season of 2022, and so I think listeners will have a real diverse selection to to choose from. Yeah, and I did want to ask one final question about your listening habits. Sure. Uh, I wonder if you have time for personal listening. Do you listen to music for enjoyment? I know with my work, I'm producing multiple radio shows and writing about music, and pretty much all I have time to do is listen to the whatever music it is mm-hmm. I'm working with at that moment, and there's not a lot of time left over for personal sure, <laughs> listening. Sure, sure. Do you struggle with that? Are you constantly immersed in the upcoming repertory, or you do you carve out time for personal listening? I don't often listen to classical music for fun. I think it's all, it's also because I do it for work. So that's already a big part of of what I do. I am a big fan. Well, I, I, I work out quite a bit, so I think I need something a little sure, bit more yeah. upbeat. <laughs> uh, a lot of EDM and, yeah. and, and, and pop music I, I, I listen to when I work out. Uh, big fan of jazz um, but when it comes to, to classical music, I think 
it's it's like you said it's, it's so instilled mm. in the work that i i get a lot of that already yeah and so i need a little bit of a change um who are your go-to edm producers or pop singers or oh jazz artists uh, is there like I, a I, particular I, favorite you have martin garrix mm. uh tiesto dead mouse the some of the more classic ones um but i basically just i'm a I'm a diehard user of Spotify, so I just sure. click on a radio and get on a go. playlist. Yeah. <laughs> Do you enjoy any of the kind of classical electronic fusions that happen, yes. like black violin? Or there's so many you yes, can add. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm always looking for people who are uh, who, who who do the mixes. I I I have no, you know, I, I don't know how to mix music. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have an electronic music background, but whoever does, and sometimes when I hear specific tracks on EDM with you know, Beethoven concertos or, or Rachmaninoff concertos. Ah, it's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it hits differently. That's awesome. I'm glad that you can appreciate yeah, that. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and Kevin, finally, I'm just curious what you see in the future. You know, you've achieved a lot already in your career. Are there particular goals or projects that you kind of see on the horizon that you're working toward? I'm very excited to see where classical music leads because I believe a lot of things are cyclical. And I think classical music had... You know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, that was kind of the golden period, the golden years, the heydays of, of classical music. And it was hard to get a ticket to, to classical music. And now it's, it's not necessarily the same. Classical music can, can be seen more as like uh, academic sort of uh, endeavor as opposed to a pure listening, uh, listening for your enjoyment. And I think I think that's going to come back. I... We, we're going to have to pivot and and do some some more work on you know the the concert experience. What what sort of things go on, go on behind the scenes? You know when you arrive at at the hall, like there's there's so much that we can do and, and experiment with. And I think that's going to be a big proponent as to whether classical music is successful. Um, but I think there's going to be a a revival, is my guess, of this sort of going out to events and especially post-COVID, going back out and enjoying yourselves at night. Um, and so I'm very excited to see where the next five to 10 years lead, especially knowing that hopefully things are cyclical. Yeah, that's a great way to end. And uh, as we end, I know you brought your violin. Were you yeah. in the mood to kind of yeah, happy to. <laughs> play Always. a quick piece? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's, do, let's do it. Yeah, awesome.
incredible. <laughs> cool. That's just a, a snippet of, of a little bit. This this goes on for quite some time. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank being you. here today, Kevin. It was a honor and privilege to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for thanks for doing this. Cultural Manifesto will return after this short break. I'm Kyle Long, and you're listening to Cultural Manifesto. Up next, we have another edition of Rebel Music with Carla Lopez. This is Carla Lopez, and you're listening to Rebel Music on Cultural Manifesto. Me llamo Carla López y estás escuchando a Música Rebelde, el Manifesto Cultural. Rebel Music explores the relationship between music and activism in Indiana and around the globe. My guest this week is Stephen Lane, a librarian archivist, and activist with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Over the last few months, Stephen and the Party for Socialism and Liberation have worked to bring greater public scrutiny to the Indianapolis Public Library's search for a new CEO, a process that has been mired in controversy. Stephen discussed his ongoing efforts to bring light to this issue during our conversation. He also brought along a few songs that have influenced his work as an activist. Let's join my conversation with Stephen Lane. So hi, Stephen. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. We're going to listen to some music and talk about your work as an activist. You're currently a librarian and an archivist and a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. How long have you been living in Indianapolis? So I am. I was born and raised here in Indianapolis um, on uh, West 38th Street. Um, so when I grew up on West 38th Street, like right before you get to the highway, it was very much a different place than what you recognize today. It was very much um, a black and white working class neighborhood. And I remember going to Lafayette Square Mall and just that being a whole event for me and my family. <laughs> And now it's it's so interesting to see how different that side of town is as like an international um, space, like an immigrant um, centers over there and like amazing immigrant food. And yeah, I really enjoy how West 38th Street has changed. And then um, around six, we moved over to the near east side to Lawrence. And so I graduated from Lawrence Central High School. Go Bears. And you're very active with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. What is PSL and what is your role with the organization? So what kind of things do you do? Absolutely. So I've been a full member for the Party for Socialism and Liberation for a year now. And what we really focus on is building working class power here in Indianapolis, as well as throughout uh, branches throughout the country. And we believe that working people make the world run. So working people should run the world. That's what we believe. And so I was elected to the steering committee of our local branch over the summer. And it's just been a real pleasure to serve in that kind of leadership role and learn how to be a leader. 
Um, you know, I feel like working class people, there's so few opportunities for us to become leaders or express um, leadership. And, you know, this is one avenue where, you know, um, I've been able to grow up as a leader. You know, it really reminds me of, you know, Madam C.J. Walker, where she was always saying, like, you know, no one ever gave her an opportunity, so she gave herself an opportunity, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and I feel like PSL is, is that avenue for me and a lot of other working class people here in the city who felt like they didn't have a voice before, felt like, felt powerless to change anything. Um, and here we are fighting for change. And you've been very vocal and visible in the community recently in advocating for Nichelle Hayes as the CEO of the Indianapolis Public Library. You're a librarian and you, you used to work at the Indianapolis Public Library. Tell me why you're passionate about this. I feel very passionate about this library struggle. You know, it's not every day that you hear about socialists fighting for a CEO <laughs> to get a job. Usually we're fighting against the CEOs. However, in this case, we believe, you know, the union has been so involved in, you know, creating leadership. And Nichelle Hayes was a union member. And, you know, just watching her work, like, you know, she's my mentor. Full disclosure, Nichelle Hayes is my mentor. When I first um, started library school, she was uh, very new to the system. And she just came up to me and she was like, um, do you have a mentor? And I was like, no, I do not have a mentor. And she's like, well, I'm your mentor now. You know, and that was something that the Indianapolis Public Library didn't offer. Mm -hmm. um, so she really showed me how to navigate the system uh, at NDPL and, you know, move any kind of issues out of the way. Or she would tell me, like, these are the issues that I faced and this is how you can get around having to deal with those issues. Like, she really was like, I want you to learn from my mistakes so that you don't have to go through the same ones that I'm going through. You know, it, it was really, like, her leadership is just incredible. It's mm -hmm. stellar. And I think it's worth something uh, worth fighting for. You know, I think um, um, we should be able to hire our own bosses, um, especially when they are amazing leaders, as Nichelle is. And we see all the broad support that she has from the community and the city um, and within the library system itself and just all across the country. Thank you. I know that at one point you hosted a music podcast and obviously music is something that you're passionate about. Is there a relationship between art and music and your work as an activist? I definitely, like music, I mean, it's just, be, I, I, I wish I was a creative an artist. I like to hang out with artists because I just love being around all that creative energy and things like that. So I, really started going to the first Fridays around the city, going to different art galleries, went to the Murphy Building a lot, and I feel like I got to meet all these amazing creative um, people um, throughout that, <laughs> throughout going through that whole process. Yeah, so I feel like meeting people like Eduardo Luna, who actually got me into that podcast, um, and it was the Ava Extravaganza show on Musical Family Tree, and so I played the character of Ava, who was a drag queen, and I would also host Punk Rock Night at the Melody Inn as Ava Extravaganza. 
so in drag and it was really it was a really fun experience especially like going there before um uh, punk rock night started because it was country music night before <laughs> punk rock night starts and i'm coming in as this drag queen and around all these country folks and you know and they love me you know <laughs> they're really excited to see me too so it was really fun but yeah i believe you know like music um is very much tied to my activism i i listen to a lot of music to um, get ready to go to actions or even go to work, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. you know, to help motivate me and, and hype me up. And a lot of the music I'm listening these days are, would be like Meg The Stallion and Ice Spice. Like, the rap girls are just killing it these days, and they're really just um, exuding all this confidence. Um, and I'm like, I want some of that. I want some of that confidence. And, you know, so listening to that music, I feel like they just transfer a little bit to me. <laughs> And I think that's the perfect segue into the next question that I'm going to ask you, because you brought some music to share with us today. And we're going to talk about that now. The first song that you picked is My Daddy Rocks Me by Frankie Half Pint Jackson, who was a black female impersonator in the 1920s and 30s. And you've also done research about the history of drag queens. Tell us about how you got involved in this research and why you picked the song. Yeah, so um, this, I got involved in researching black drag queens here in Indianapolis through my work um, at my graduate school work at IUPUI in the public history program. And I, I knew I wanted to look into the gay history of Indianapolis, LGBTQ history of Indianapolis, because we don't know too much about it. You know, it's, it's just kind of passed down. Um, orally from, you know, uh, the, our elders in the gay community, which there aren't um, so many left. So, you know, I really cherish those moments uh, with our elders um, and all the knowledge that they have about the city. Um, but I was sitting in class one day and my professor mentioned something about gay clubs existing uh, along Indiana Avenue, and that really piqued my interest. And he pointed me to a grad student's paper about the jazz era on Indiana Avenue that made mention of um, these drag queens, or they called themselves female impersonators at the time. Mm -hmm. And I found out that, you know, we had our first pansy ball or drag show in 1933 along Indiana Avenue. And that's when the get, it really became gay men doing it. Like there were drag shows before, but they weren't explicitly like gay men. I guess they really seized the industry and just kind of took it over from uh, from the 1930s on. And so I picked that song by Frankie Halfpint Jackson because in that initial article about the first pansy ball in Indianapolis, there's also an article, I believe, on that same page or in that same issue on Frankie Halfpint Jackson coming to Indiana Avenue and performing and then finding out that one of the big female impersonators from Indianapolis, Doris Duchess White, would go up to Chicago and performed with Frankie Halfpint Jackson. And so I really like this song because um, looking into his, uh, his character and, you know, his performances, he would he would often sing like the female and the male part song, parts of the duet in a in a jazz song, and he wasn't afraid to sing songs about like my daddy rocks me, which is 
um, considered the first song recording of someone imitating an orgasm on, <laughs> on a record on a live recording, which I think is just um, really speaks to the jazz era because <laughs> you know it's very much about human expression. It's about expressing your sexuality. So I I really think you know there was always this progressive element to jazz that that supported LGBTQ people. And, you know, Frankie Halfpine Jackson, he was a star, so you can really see that people loved him. And Stephen, the next song that you picked to share with us is One Nation Under a Groove by Funkadelic. What about this song speaks to you? Yes, I love funk music. Um, thanks to my family, my dad, he listened to a lot of funk and Isley Brothers, R&B, Isley Brothers and all that. Um, and I just really love like the unifying effect of that song. You know, One Nation Under a Groove, like we're all you know, united, unified, dancing together, you know, just having a good time. Um, and, you know, I think that song really gives me something to aspire to in the work that I do and that, you know, I, I don't want us to feel so alienated or disconnected from each other, but how can we come together and unite under, you know, one groove, one message, one vision. Ready or not, yeah, we come getting down Constriction. 
And the next track we're going to listen to is by Sylvester, who was an icon of disco music and the LGBTQ plus culture. Can you tell us why Sylvester's music is meaningful to you? I love Sylvester. I think she lives so boldly and so loudly as herself in, in a time that seemed like it was very difficult to do that. You know, Sylvester is just an inspiration because she did it at a time when it really wasn't popular. And she's like, I'm just going to do me and make music because that's what I want to do. And do you want to funk? Um, you know, I feel like she's really trying to get people to, you know, accept her for who she is. Um, she wants people to love her. She's looking for love. Um, and I feel like a lot of us are on that same path. And um, yeah, she's just very inspirational. And you already talked a little bit about this, but your final song is from a new artist, Flo Millie. Women have really stepped out in rap music and have become, you know, dominating figures in this genre. Can you tell us why you picked this song from Flo Millie? I started going to the gym this year <laughs> and I was really nervous about doing it. And I really had to find things that keep me motivated and going back. Um, like you're you're working out around these, you know, really buff guys that just, you know, they you always hear like how mean they are and how they're just meatheads and they don't know anything. But then you start going to the gym and you find out they're really cool. But anyway, like the music I listen to while I'm at the gym would be like Meg Thee Stallion or Flo Millie because they really keep me motivated. And I just feel like they, they just exude so much confidence and... You know, Flo Millie is, um, you know, really talking about making her own lane as well. You know, like she was saying, you know, no one ever gave me an opportunity and I made my own lane and I'm in it. You know, like I love that. I love people who, you know, they see how constrained they're, they may feel like they're supposed to live. And they're like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to live like that. I want to live loud. I want to live boldly, and I want to live my life the best way I know how. And I feel like the Flo Millie does that, and a lot of Meg Thee Stallion, all the rap girls. I love it. If I were a rich man, All day long I'd be If I were a wealthy man. Flo Millie? If I was a rich man, I drop my on a hater. I'm a player. BBS chains, watches and brains, blowing that cash on the acre. Bankroll for these stink. Four days in the same clothes. Push ups just to get swole. All of my bitches got white toes. Do what the fuck I want. Kid, it didn't leave her alone. Cartier, my cologne. 
the country club with my bros. Stupid, this just a double standard. I made my own lane and I took advantage. You can't hate on if it rule the planet. I just came in and came and I'm doing damage. Yeah, stupid, talk about this, talk about that. I got my own money. I don't need your If I was a rich man, I'm a rich. We're rich, Cause you talking about? If I was, they never should've messed up and gave me money. Came straight out of Bama, not ain't funny. I swear these be making me sick. Like all they do is eat up some shit. Yeah, I'm in my prime though. They feeding me like it's a block. Can't let up on no. Get in the booth and go loco. Cash out in London, just take me to sound I'm rich. Oh boy, keep your distance. He know he can't. Cause this expensive. Stupid, it's just a double standard. I made my own lane and I took advantage. You can't hate on if it ruled the planet. I just came in the game and I'm doing damage. Yeah, thought I was I'm Carla Lopez Owens, and you're listening to Rebel Music on Cultural Manifesto. My guest this week is a librarian and activist, Stephen Lane. Let's return to our conversation. And Stephen, thank you so much for being here today. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? I do want to say that, you know, this library struggle has been very important to to us. And I think it's so important to stay engaged in the community. We're also working with the Whitfield family um, to bring about, um, you know, changes within our public safety and also um, meet the demands of the family, which is to charge the police officers for the murder of Herman Whitfield III, who was killed in his home April 25th of 2022. Um, You know, his family called 911 trying to get assistance, um, you know, with an ambulance, like mental health professional to come to the home. And the the IMPD showed up instead and ended up, you know, tasing Herman and suffocating him in front of his family. And I, I just think that that's disgusting. We need, we deserve better um, public safety. We deserve better services in terms of mental health um, and things like that. So, you know, we have a rally coming up on MLK Day. It's going to be at noon on Monument Circle. We encourage everyone to come out and support Herman Whitfield III. Thank you. My guest this week has been the librarian and activist, Stephen Lane. I'm Carla Lopez-Owens. Stay tuned for future editions of Rebel Music on Cultural Manifesto. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you to our guests, Kevin Lynn and Stephen Lane. I'm Kyle Long, and you've been listening to Cultural Manifesto.